Amen. Well, good evening, everyone. It's a joy to be with all of you again on this uh, Lord's Day. It's very hot and humid Lord's Day evening that our good and gracious Father has given to test us and refine us. Well, if you have your Bibles with you this, uh, tonight, would you open up to the New Testament in the book of Philippians? Philippians chapter 3. You can find Galatians and then Ephesians, and then you will come to Philippians chapter 3. Now, as you're turning, uh, just a couple brief uh, reminders as to the book of Philippians. Uh, the Apostle Paul uh, wrote this letter uh, to the church in Philippi. And it's one of uh, what we call his prison epistles. There's four inspired letters uh, that we have from the Apostle Paul that he wrote when he was in prison under house arrest in Rome, uh, right at the very end of the book of Acts. When the book of Acts closes, we leave the Apostle Paul under house arrest in prison there in Rome, his first Roman imprisonment. Of course, he would be imprisoned a second time and would face his death. But in this first imprisonment, he writes four letters under the inspiration of the Spirit, uh, Ephesians, Colossians, Philemon, and then here, the book of Philippians. And so, Paul, as, as a sufferer for Christ, as one who is in chains for Christ, is in the background and is simmering under the surface of everything that he says here in this letter. So, first, uh, Philippians chapter 3, we'll pick up our reading in verse 4, and we'll read through verse, verse 10. Philippians 3 uh, pick it up in verse 4, and then we'll read actually through uh, verse 11. So you follow along with me. This is God's Word uh, for you and for me this evening. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ, and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Father, we thank you for this, your word. We ask that you would give us your spirit and that you would show us more of the wonder of our Savior in the glory of the salvation that is ours, free in Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, throughout one's life, uh, we face many important questions. Uh, where am I going to go to college? Am I going to go to college? What am I going to study in college? Am I going to pick my roommate or go potluck? 
What am I going to do for a living? What's, what's my job going to be? What kind of career path am I going to follow? Am I going to marry? Am I going to marry this individual? Am I going to marry that individual? Where am I going to move? I'm going to move to this city or that city. We all have many, many important life-defining questions that we face throughout our lives. And these questions that we've only skimmed the surface of, though important, though they may shape a portion of our life, are not of eternal significance. In fact, there is one ultimate question that we all must reckon with, that we all must face in our lives. And that question is this. How will you stand before the Lord? How will we stand before our Lord? When we stand before the one true and living God, when we stand face to face before our Creator, and the reality is that we will all one day do that, as Mark just said, our dear brother Coleman had that that unimaginable moment just a few short days ago. The question that we all must reckon with of eternal significance is this, how will we stand? Or to put it another way, what will be our foundation? What will be our hope? What will be our claim? On what will we be standing when we meet and when we see our Creator face to face? To put it even another way, why should the Lord of heaven and earth allow us and give us entrance into His presence? Now, there's many ways that we can answer this question. If right now you were to drive to downtown Houston and toss that question out, you would receive, no doubt, a variety of answers. But even if you went to knock on the doors of your neighbors, no doubt you would receive a variety of answers. I know my Bible. I've been a pretty good guy. I've been a pretty good gal throughout my life. I've done the best I can. You know, I've gone to church uh, when I've been able to make it. You know, I was baptized uh, when, I was, uh, you know, when I was younger and, and lived a pretty good life. That's, that's why the Lord will allow me entrance into His presence. But dear friends, the Bible gives us only one only one sufficient answer to that most important question. That is to say, when we stand before the Lord, there is only one claim. There is only one foundation. There is only one hope and confidence that is sufficient for sinners like all of us. And that question and that answer to that question is what the Apostle Paul is dealing with in our passage this evening. I want us to work our way through this passage under three headings. We're going to look at three things that Paul gives us. He gives us his resume, he gives us his testimony, and he gives us his reasoning. Paul's resume, Paul's testimony, and Paul's reasoning. So first, let's let's look at Paul's resume in verses 4 through 6. Now look back to the context in verses 1 through 3. Let me briefly uh, look at verses 1 through 3 for us. Finally, my brothers, verse 1, Rejoice in the Lord to write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Paul likes to repeat himself. Then look at verse 2. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in 
the flesh. And so here in these verses, these, these, these verses of context, Paul is warning the Philippian Christians, the Philippian church, to be on guard. He's warning them to be on guard against the Judaizers, to be on guard against those who boast in their works. He's warning the church to be on guard against those who are trying to sneak into the church, undercut the gospel, and point to themselves, and undercut the glorious message Paul was preaching, and were giving a false gospel, a Christ-plus gospel. So he's saying in short, look out, be on guard, beware of the dogs. Another word for beware of the Judaizers, those who would add to Christ. In contrast to those who would add to Christ, Paul says in verse 3, we, those of us who rest in Christ by faith, we are the true people of God. The Judaizers, those are not the true people of God, though they may claim to be. We who rest in Christ by faith, we are the true people of God who do what? Verse 3, worship by the Spirit, glory in Christ, and put no confidence, zero confidence in the flesh. And then picking up in verse 4, which is where I want us to to, to land and to zero in for a few moments this evening. Paul is going to personalize, in other words, he's going to take what he's just said in broad strokes and zero in on himself. He says these things in verses 1 through 3. Then he says, let me, give, let me put myself forward as an example of what I have just said. Now you can imagine what his opponents might be saying. Paul doesn't know what he's talking about. Why would you listen to Paul? Don't believe what Paul has to say. Who does he know? He wasn't even one of the original 12 apostles. Why would you listen to the Apostle Paul? Paul understands that and he says, let me give you my resume. Let me give you my pedigree of good works. Look at verse 4. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Write that little phrase, I have more. In other words, those Judaizers may boast in their works and the good works they have done. They may boast in their religious pedigree. Let me tell you about my religious pedigree. Let me tell you about the works I could boast in, I would boast in apart from the grace of God. Now Paul goes on to list seven things, seven items that Paul lists. Four, we might say, were natural, were were by birth, if you will. Three were of personal gain, so to speak. Three of effort. Let's look at these seven items briefly. First, Paul says he was circumcised on the eighth day. Literally, says he's an eighth dayer. This speaks to the purity of, uh, of his Jewish background. That Paul was raised in a family that observed the law, that observed the ceremonial law. Paul was not a proselyte. He was not a convert. He was raised in a good, upstanding, religious, law-keeping family. Secondly, Paul says that he is of the people of Israel. That is to say, his parents were not of mixed stock. He was a direct descendant of Jacob. Put it another way, he was purebred Jew, we might say. Thirdly, Paul says that he is of the tribe of Benjamin. There's a little debate as to exactly what Paul is getting at here. 
One suggestion would be this. If you remember Benjamin, Benjamin was the son of Jacob's beloved wife, Rachel, not the son of Leah, but he was the son of Jacob's beloved wife, Rachel. Benjamin was one of the two tribes that was loyal to Judah when the kingdom divided back in 1 Kings chapter 12. Ten tribes rebelled, went to the north. Two tribes stayed loyal to the house of David to the south. Judah and then the tribe of Benjamin. Speaks to, you might say, the, the nobility of his pedigree, as one commentator puts it. Fourthly, Paul says that he is a Hebrew of Hebrews. This is a common uh, Jewish idiom, that he was the purest of the pure. The purest of the pure. He was from a family that spoke, as my Old Testament professors would put it, God's language that spoke Hebrew. Uh, he, he was not from a family that had been compromised by the Greco-Roman culture. To put it very simply, he was a hardcore Hebrew, we might say. So those are the four natural, by birth, check marks that Paul could look at his resume and set forth. But there's more. Three more items. Look at the, the, the fifth thing Paul says, as to the law, a Pharisee. Paul was a Pharisee. Remember the Pharisees, especially from the Gospel of John? Jesus' continual battle that he would do with the Pharisees. They were the strictest Jewish sect that arose during what we call the intertestamental time between the closing of the Old Testament and the opening of the New. Several different Jewish sects uh, were formed and rose to prominence. The Pharisees were the strictest and most religious of the various Jewish sects. They were the separate ones. Literally, the word means they were the separated ones, separate because of their scrupulous and detailed law-keeping. The sixth thing item Paul mentions, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. Paul was no lukewarm Pharisee. He was zealous. He was fervent. He was fervent for the the, the, the purity of his Jewish background and his Jewish understanding. And then seventh, as to the law, blameless. As to the law, blameless. Or at least so he thought. He was like the rich young ruler. In Jesus' parable of Matthew chapter 19, Jesus comes to him and, and the ruler comes to Jesus and says, What must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, Keep the law. And the Rich young ruler says, all these things I have kept from my youth. Paul was like the Pharisee from Jesus' parable in Luke 18 of the Pharisee and the tax collector. When the Pharisee cries out, Lord, I thank you that I'm not like that tax collector over there, but I've done all these great things and gone not only this far, but even above and beyond. Paul's observance of the law went, as we just said, above and beyond. Quite a resume that Paul can boast of. That's the kind of resume that would find its way to the top of a stack. We have an HR expert with us. That's the resume that would just kind of miraculously appear at the top of the stack. Quite a list of achievements. Paul had done one glorious thing, one good work after another, or at least so he thought. If performance was the entrance standard, Paul would have 
sailed right in with no problems. And of course, we can bring that type of resume to our own day and age. Again, if you were to go out and ask someone, why should the Lord of heaven and earth permit you entrance into his presence? You might find a, a, a most likely we would find some kind of variation of what Paul said right here. I'm an American, you might hear. I'm a Texan, you might even hear more. I'm a Houstonian, maybe even, maybe even more. I grew up in a religious home, went to church all my life. I was baptized. I've been a pretty good person. I've done the best to raise my children. This is not fanciful stuff, what Paul is boasting in. This is what we would hear every day if we went and asked our neighbors this very same question. Well, what is Paul's testimony? So first we see Paul's resume. What is Paul's testimony about his resume? What does he think about his resume, and then why does he think that way? That's where we're going to head secondly. So secondly, Paul's testimony in verses 7 and 8. In the background of these verses, of what Paul says here in verse 7 and 8, is of course his miraculous conversion. Acts chapter 9 is the background in the context for verses 7 and 8. Again, we remember the story. Paul's on his way to Damascus. He's on the road to Damascus from Jerusalem. He has obtained uh, letters granting him permission to enter into the synagogues and to go hunt down those of the way, to go hunt down the Christians and to bring them bound back to Jerusalem to face interrogation and persecution. The Bible says that Paul was breathing threats and murders as he was on the way to Damascus. And of course, he is confronted by the risen and exalted Lord Jesus Christ. His world is exploded, we might say. He is confronted in all of his sinfulness and all of his righteousness and all of his filthy rags. And he is exposed to be what he truly was, which was a wretched sinner. Paul's entire world, his entire worldview was turned on its head. So look at what Paul says in verse 7, knowing that he's now writing as a converted man, as one who has been redeemed and saved by the grace of God alone. Look back at verse 7. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Now here, Paul shifts the metaphor. He begins to use a, an, accounting, an accounting metaphor. It is the image of the balance sheet. Look what he says again in verse 7. But, here's the great conjunction. But whatever gain I had. What is Paul talking about? Well, he's talking about the seven things he's just mentioned. Whatever gain I had, I might have had by virtue of my birth. First four items he mentions. Or by virtue of the the great life, that the great religious life that I had lived, the last three things Paul mentions, whatever gain I had, everything that I just mentioned and whatever else I could stack on top, I counted as loss. Note the past tense. In other words, writing now as a converted man. I counted as loss. There is the great reversal, we might say. The great reversal of values, of priorities at one's conversion. 
whatever gain I had because of all the good works that I had supposedly done, I now count as loss. Why? What is the reason for this great reversal? Well, he tells us, for the sake of Christ. Whatever gain I had, now looking at it through Christ-colored lenses, I now count as loss. Why? Why this reversal? Why this explosion of, of, of worldviews? For the sake of Christ. To put it another way, what Paul's saying is this. Being good, our pedigree, our religious performance cannot make us right with God. All the privileges that Paul is describing, all the, the checks that had one time been in the plus column, now having been confronted by the risen Christ, now having, having the Spirit show Paul and having, Paul, having his eyes open to the sin of his own heart and his own life, are now not in the plus column, but they're in the negative column and as far in the negative column as Paul could possibly put them. After being confronted by Christ, after being confronted by the gospel, having his eyes opened by the Spirit, Paul now sees himself for who he truly is, a wretched sinner in desperate need of the saving grace of God. This is what one author has said, the new accounting of a converted man. Not the old accounting of a sinful man, the new accounting of a converted man. Simply put, there is nothing that we can look to in ourselves to make us right with God. Why not? Because in ourselves, the Bible says, we are helpless and hopeless and dead people walking because of our sin. Ephesians 2.8, text we all know well, by the grace of God, I've been saved by the grace of God, not by works, lest no man should boast. Dear friends, this is just the gospel. This is just the old rugged cross. This is the pearl of great price that Jesus talks about in Matthew 13, that we would sell all that we have, that we might have that gospel pearl. That's what Paul says in Titus 3.5, that God saved us, not according to our works, but according to His great mercy. But then Paul goes on. This is, this is a, a wonderful, a stunning passage. He goes on and he's even stronger. Look in verse 8. Look at verse 8 again. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. This is even a stronger statement than he made in verse 7. And what is fascinating to note is that in verse 8, Paul's talking in the present tense. In verse 7, Paul was speaking in the past tense. In a sense, looking back, almost his mindset right after his conversion. And in verse 8, Paul is now talking some 20, 30 years post-conversion. So we ask the question, has his testimony become weaker over these 20 or 30 years? Has Paul's heart kind of cooled off a little bit? Might we say to Paul, you know, we understand your zeal when you're first converted, but can't you, you know, just lighten up a little bit? Now in verse 8, he's even stronger in what he says. He's even stronger in what he says 30 years later. In fact, the first few words in verse 8, our English translations can't quite capture 
They're almost untranslatable. Literally translated, it would read something like this. But indeed, therefore, at least. That doesn't really translate all that well into the English. Paul is straining for words. He's grasping at straws and grasping all he can in his Greek to drive home the glory of this great reversal. He's straining for words. All things, Paul says, anything that we could possibly hope in in this world is rubbish. It's like the dung heap compared to the all-sufficient, all-surpassing excellence of knowing Christ Jesus. Look at what he says. Of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Look at those last two little words. Not a Lord, not the Lord, this is Paul's testimony. Anointing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Luther in his commentary, or in one of his commentaries, says that these words should be written in gold in our hearts. Christ Jesus, my Lord. But again, we can bring this home to where we live. We go back to the question that we thought about uh, at the beginning of our time this evening. What are we hoping in? What are we resting in? What, dear friends, are you resting in this very evening? We all read our Bibles. We wouldn't be here on Sunday evening if we didn't read our Bibles. We all pray. We go to church even twice. These are all wonderful things, things that we should most certainly keep on doing. But they don't save us. Only Jesus saves us. Nothing in my hands I bring, as Toplady put it, simply to the cross I cling, naked flee to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. But Paul goes on. He doesn't leave it there. He doesn't simply give us his testimony and then stop, so to speak. He doesn't leave us there, but he gives us reasons why. So it gives us his testimony, which is a testimony of this great reversal of values. And then he explains to us why. How can he have this great reversal? How can Paul say, whatever gain I had, now I count as loss for the sake of Christ? That's great, Paul, but why? Paul says, let me tell you in verses 10 and following. And the answer is because of who Jesus is because of who Jesus is and what he has done for us in verses 9 through 11. So look at verses 9 through 11 with me. And be found in him, there's the, the, the kicker, and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him, the power of his resurrection, and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. And then he goes on and on. A couple things to note what Paul says here in these verses. I want you to note that little phrase, being found in him. Being found in him. Look at what he says next. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. Paul here is speaking of what we call our justification. So why can Paul say, how can Paul say whatever gain I had, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ? One reason Paul can say that is because it is only in Christ that we are 
justified. That is to say, we are declared right. Right in the presence of God. Right before God. When we stand before our Lord on that judgment day, again, the question is, what are we going to be standing on? Are we going to be standing on, Lord, I did the best I could. I went to church quite a bit. I read my Bible. I was baptized. I might have even done some evangelism when I was young. Are we going to stand on that? Dear friends, no. The answer is no. We're not going to stand on those human good works tainted with sin. What Paul says here in verse 9 is that we are going to be standing on Jesus Christ and what He did for us. Not our own righteousness through the law, but the righteousness that comes through faith in Christ. He is our foundation. He is our resting place. It's not what we do, it's what He has done. John Bunyan, familiar with John Bunyan, the great English Puritan, 17th century, uh, he wrote Pilgrim's Progress. He also wrote a, little, uh, a book called Grace Abounding. So he wrote, Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners. Listen to what Bunyan says in his autobiography. And think about this sentence. One day, Bunyan says, as I was passing into the field, this sentence fell upon my soul. Thy righteousness is in heaven. And with the eyes of my soul, I saw Jesus at the Father's right hand. There, I said, is my righteousness. So that wherever I was or whatever I was doing, God could not say to me, where is your righteousness? For it is always right before him. I saw that it is not my good frame of heart that made my righteousness better, nor yet my bad frame that made my righteousness worse. For my righteousness is Christ. Now my chains fell off indeed, my temptations fled away, and I lived sweetly at peace with God. Dear friends, our righteousness, our hope is in heaven at the right hand of the Father, Christ Jesus, our Lord. So why can Paul say, whatever gain I ha had, now I consider loss? Because of who Christ is and what He had done. That on the cross, our sin was put on Him. His perfect righteousness was given, was credited, was, was imputed to us, so that we can say, Lord, you should let me into your heaven because my righteousness is at your right hand. My hope is not in me. It is at your right hand in your Son with whom I am united by faith. But Paul goes on. He says even more. Look at verse 10. That I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings becoming like him in death. Look at what Paul says, that I may know him. We might say, didn't Paul already know Jesus? He's been converted about 25, 30 years, give or take. Paul wants to know him more. Paul has a longing to know his Savior even more. Once we have tasted of the sweetness of Christ, truly and genuinely by true faith, 
We long to know Him more, to die more and more to sin, and to grow more and more in holiness, especially through the trials of life. Remember where Paul's writing from? He's writing from a prison cell. Yet Paul can say that I would know Christ more. And then thirdly and finally, Paul says, it is becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Here Paul's looking forward to that, that final day of resurrection when he will see in his glorified body his Savior face to face. So again, we ask the question, why can Paul say whatever gain I had, now I consider lost because of Christ? Because Paul knows that Christ, as the Son of God, is His righteousness. He knows that Christ is His holiness. That it is Christ at work in Him that, 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 that spurs Paul on to have a greater knowledge of his Savior. And because Christ is His ultimate hope that he would see Him with His own eyes on that glorious resurrection day. So that's why Paul can say, whatever gain I had, I now consider loss. Because there is one hope, and that one hope is Christ Jesus our Lord. Four brief things to take from this. One, it is this glorious truth that distinguishes Christianity from every other religion on the globe. This one truth that our hope is not in ourselves, but it is in God coming down and doing what we could not do, He did for us in His Son. That profound gospel truth is what distinguishes Christianity from every other religion and worldview under the sun. Islam, Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, Judaism, and we could go on and on and on are but shades of gray and various strands of sinful humanity working their way up the ladder to get to the Lord. Various shades of gray of the Tower of Babel. It is only the gospel that says, no, our, our thrice holy God, He came down and did what we could not do, and He clothes us with the righteousness of His own Son. We also, this passage also calls us to examine our own hearts. So when we're lying peacefully in our beds tonight to think about, where is my hope? Where is my foundation? When the Lord calls me home, on what am I going to be standing? something that I have done throughout my life? Or am I going to be standing enveloped and clothed in the spotless robe of our Savior? And then thirdly, if that is our testimony like Paul's, we should rejoice. It should give us a certain sense of peace and freedom. Though we live in a world filled with trials, we just prayed for many of these, this should give us a certain supernatural peace and joy and freedom that this world cannot give. And then fourthly and finally, in light of that, that is the message that we take to this world. We live in the midst of a world that is looking to themselves to make things right. 
that is looking to themselves to make things right. This world says the problem is out there. We need to look in here. The Bible says, no, the problem is in here, and we need to look up there to our Savior, to our crucified, exalted, and risen Savior. That is the good news that we take to a dying, dark world. This is the light of the gospel. That is our hope, and that is the message in the balm, as Mark prayed, that we take to a world that so desperately needs it. Praise God for His Word. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for this rich and wonderful passage. We thank You for the glorious truth of the gospel. Father, in many ways, these are the ABCs of what we believe as Christians. But Father, we confess that we never get past the ABCs. We only grow deeper in them. We only grow more thankful for the glorious truth that whatever gain we might have had, we now consider loss because we belong to Christ. And whatever we may have looked to, whatever we may have boasted in before you took hold of us, we now count as nothing, only for the sake of Christ alone. May that be our joy. May that be our hope, our foundation. May that be the message that we take to this fallen, sin-cursed world. And Father, would you give us your spirit that we might do that in the weeks and months to come. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.